So thanks, everybody. Welcome back to part two of our special presentation on the international experience of the patient-centred medical home. We've heard about, wonder we've heard about what a medical home should be and how it works in theory and some of the evidence behind why we wanted to build medical homes. Then you were struck with the reality. Can you tell us a bit about what happened when you started to support practices who wanted to become patient-centred medical homes? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, so when anyone, everybody that saw the original joint principles of the patient-centered medical home absolutely said, yes, this makes sense. Conceptually, it makes sense. Theoretically, it makes sense. This is really going to, to change what everything that we do um, and believe that this would be kind of the, the superhero that would come and save our primary care system. And I'll say that what, what we found, and I'm going to talk more about this, but what we found was really that it was very, very hard um, to make this change uh, for, for many different reasons. Um, certainly uh, just the, 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 the culture change that's involved, but I'm going to go through a few things that I think along the way and over these past 10 years that we realized and that I personally wish that I'd known before we got started on this journey, but that uh, but many of us uh, have realized um, would have been important to know. And so I think it's good, uh, good, a good cautionary tale, but, but nothing here is insurmountable. So the first thing I'll say is that the, changing the culture for, of the primary care physician and the other providers and the care team is very difficult. Uh, and I'll go into each one of these in a little bit more detail. Um, the, sorry, go, 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 go stay, stay there. Yeah. The, the professional and patient satisfaction was not really well represented in early iterations. So I think that we, we called it patient centered medical home. The purpose was that it would be patient centered. Um, but it was not really clear early on what benefit patients were getting. How were we assessing their experience with this? Did they like this or not? I'll tell you a really interesting story before I go on to that next, the, the next one. But my my mother um, was uh, was in the same state I was in in Connecticut um, when I was really excited about transforming all these clinics that I had to patients in our medical homes, and I was telling her I want you to go to one of our clinics and go go get care there. I think it's going to be great um, for you for you to go in. And she was having some you know pain in her knee, so I said I want you to go to one of these clinics and tell me what you think when you when you finish and when you when you come out. And so she says. You know, I went there and I wanted to tell them about my knee, but they kept asking me if I wanted a tetanus shot and about my mammogram and all these things that I didn't come there for. And I was like, just take care of my knee. And so I was saying, no, that's what we're supposed to do. This is what, this is what we want them to do. That this is um, was a patient-centered from her point of view, yeah. which was fix, fix my knee. Yeah, fix my knee. So from her point of view, you know, they're asking me all these things. It's not what I came for. You know, please, you know, uh, do what I came for. So, you know, thinking about how do you really make sure that you're capturing the experience and satisfaction of patients that are that this is for, um, and getting their input into what this, how this could be more more um, favorable to them. Um, the other the other two things are that uh, you know aligning payment. Uh, we're heavily fee for service um, in in the states, and to being able to align the payment and the policy reforms that are needed to support this takes a long time. So it really needs to be started early. Now on the flip side, I'll say that if we had waited for the payment and, and the and the policymakers to come up with the exact plan and the model that would support this before we started doing this, I think we would never have started. So I think it's good to also prove the case. Um, and then finally, technology, again, is important. Everyone thought, you know, the electronic health records are going to change everything about what we do. Um, technology is definitely a tool, but not necessarily an answer. If you have broken systems and you put technology onto a broken system with broken workflows, you're going to still have a broken system that just has technology in it. So, so those are the, the, the high level of thoughts. So I'm going to go into each one of those in a little bit more detail. Fantastic. So first, These lessons are gold for us. So oh, thanks. great. 
Absolutely. Um, so we can go on. So the first one about uh, culture, uh, culture change um, for the primary care providers and the teams. Um, and I realized that I probably should have used another word here, but I, you know, culture trumps strategy <laughs> every time. Um, but, you know, the, the culture of an organization um, is, will always undo uh, whatever the, stra- the best strategy that you possibly have. Um, no matter how good you think uh, the, 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 the model is, uh, being able to kind of get under the covers and figure out what what people what really drives people and what what are the habits that are going to be hard to break is really important. So go on to the next That's slide. So there are a few that I've. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know how important how important Pac-Man is for our program. So it's <laughs> Pac-Man. I think is always a good a good image. Uh, it just says a lot. But you know what what are some of the things that go into change? Um, you know what 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 are the things that are written? Um, what are the things that are not written? How do you really go, you know, get the vision aligned with, uh, with, with the leadership, but, but recognize all the different points where you can have people that are dissatisfied? So we can go on to the next one. So here are the main places um, that, I, that I thought really the, the big changes that, that occurred. So for the physicians or the primary care providers, we were not really taught in medical school to work in teams. We were taught to lead teams and to be the boss of teams, <laughs> but to actually say we're going to spread out both the responsibility um, and the tasks among different members of the team, and we're going to have everybody working to the top of their license, um, was really, really important. One of the things that I did early on when I was trying to bring a dietitian into, you know, trying to get her involved in the patient-centered medical home more, was sit down and say, what do you actually, like, what actually can you do? You know, what, what, what can a di- I tell the, the, the physicians that a dietitian can offer them? And she came up with this fantastic one-pager on all the different ways a dietitian could support a patient in a primary care setting. And we started to talk about that with the primary care providers. And frankly, a lot of them did not know. They didn't really know all the different things that if you have a patient with cystic fibrosis or COPD, or that's, you know, that has, you know, of course, diabetes and hypertension, they think about, but some of the other places where she could be helpful, were not known. So starting to talk through what could a dietitian do and how could that help you really help them to understand what these, all, all these roles could be. Um, also the medical legal fear. So we're in a high litigious society um, physicians are constantly fearful of getting sued by their patients um, for things that go wrong. So people would say to me, well, you know, I want to let the nurse do this and do a little bit more of this, but if anything happens, I'm going to be the one that gets sued. And so I'm not comfortable relinquishing responsibility or tasks or delegating these, de- these duties to other members of the care team. Uh, so to be able to address some of that, you've got to really think about what does it take to get people to feel comfortable with that? And so, for example, there was a time when I was implementing standing orders where we were going to have nurses be able to manage and titrate basal insulin for patients with diabetes. And the providers were scared, just totally scared. But we thought it could really get some of the better controlled and more stable diabetic patients into the nursing schedules and not necessarily in the provider schedules and free up some space. So to be able to get people comfortable with that, one of the things that I did was have a series of lunch and learns, have the nurses all go together, the clinical pharmacists, um, one of the physicians who was really um, a master in kind of insulin management, did a lot of trainings for the nurses to get them to be comfortable, get the providers to, to know that they had really good, strong training, and then, you know, give them the ability to talk through at, as teams, why don't you try it out with a couple of patients, see how that goes. And then if you feel comfortable that your nurse did the right thing, you overlooked it, you thought that it worked, you start to increasingly allow him or her to have more responsibility. So that's, that's kind of some of the things that you've got to really work at. Um, 
and, and, and the feeling that, you know, well, the old way has been just fine. We've been okay doing this this way. Why, why, why change if it's not really broken? So in those cases, you know, back to those building blocks, sometimes showing people data really helps a lot. Well, yeah, the old way has worked because we're comfortable with it, but it technically from a clinical quality standpoint, it hasn't worked. Uh, we haven't really achieved some of the goals that we, that we hope for. So those are kind of things that we had to work on. And then for the clinical team as well, it's not just the physicians that have a hard time working in teams. I mean, I'd have medical assistants saying to me, medical assistants are junior staff, um, paraprofessionals that support the care team. They are um, usually high school graduates um, with, that do an additional certification six to nine months. Um, and they are the ones that help to uh, take the vital signs for a patient, put them in the rooms, prepare them for the provider. But they don't have nursing skills or, um, or, or those kind of clinical skills at all. But they're a very important member of, our, of, of many of our care teams. And they would say... I don't feel comfortable doing all this. The doctor's going to be mad at me if I, if I mess up. You know, I don't really know how to work equally with a provider. <laughs> you know, um, you know the, the physicians had all this training. So it wasn't just the providers having a hard time getting into these teams, but also convincing the other members of the team that they are qualified to carry out certain mm-hmm. um, job functions. And um, you will support them with the skills and the training support that, are, that is needed. Um, and, you know, getting people to say, well, I've, all I've normally done is just kind of get the people ready and put them in the room for you. Now you want me to have more of a relationship with the patients. That, that was also hard for them. So I think just being able to address, be able to be aware of these potential um, cultural challenges that you might have uh, and, and, and be proactive in how to address them is really, really important. We can go on to, to the next one. So the next one is, is the professional and patient satisfaction um, that I mentioned. We can go on uh, to the next slide. But this is really, you know, um, I love this, this, this cartoon. Um, Sachin Jain, um, he's, a, he's a, a major or primary care um, leader in the United States, you know, is, is drawn this kind of, uh, this is what patient-centered care has, has sometimes feels like for patients. You know, that you've got all these people that are taking care of you, patients in the middle. No one's looking at the patient. And everybody's kind of consumed with this, with this technology. And so, as I mentioned, sometimes what we think oh, this great technology and all these tools and things that we have are going to be so fantastic for the patients. But sometimes what the patient really wants is just your eye contact. <laughs> um, mm. And so thinking through what, do you, and, and then as I mentioned in that quadruple aim, also, you know, we didn't think that much about what does this mean for the professionals that are delivering this care? Um, will these advances that we have, we've created, this new role of care team, the supervision that's required, um, documenting everything in the electronic medical record, are these things going to be good things or are they going to make people feel like they're not getting quality time with their patients anymore? Um, and I, as I mentioned, the, the, many different organizations have these patient satisfaction surveys and you know, patients would leave and they would ask you things like, you know, were, were you satisfied with the amount of time it took you to get your appointment? Um, was I satisfied with the cleanliness of the environment and, you know, things like that. And of course, you know, you can get those and, and be happy about them, but true needs that patients have are often not captured in many of the surveys that, that are, that are used and that are kind of the patients at a medical home requirement to ask for. Um, if you don't tell people what's going on, so someone like my mother, I just said, okay, I want you to go and just try this. It's going to be great when you get there. You're going to love it. But she had no idea what this was for. And in her mind, this was kind of invasive. You know, you've got this medical assistant asking me all these things. Um, I, you know, I didn't really necessarily um, come in here for that. So if you're not really informing people of what this is, why this is good, how this is going to be better than what they, what they wanted, then it actually feels quite annoying um, and frustrating for them. So I think being able to uh, incentivize the providers to understand the value proposition of this added work uh, 
and and how this really is going to address what they're experiencing and, and, bur- and their burnout and their dissatisfaction is really important. And then on the flip side, making sure this is really communicated well to patients, they understand what's going on, but they also have a chance to weigh in and say, yeah, you know, this is this would be good, but I think what would really be even greater is if you could blank, blank, blank. And so having patients start to weigh in on the quality improvement committees, on the different performance improvement committees, on some of the initiatives that the clinics are undertaking is a really is a really good way um, to anticipate what um, what you might run into or what some challenges might be for the patients. Um, so again, another cartoon, um, you know, this is, I'm sorry, I thought we could save him. There was just too much paperwork, um, you know, but, you know, that's uh, the, being aware of the fact that you've created a lot more work for the primary care providers and the care teams by, by going through this model. Um, the next thing is around payment reform. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because this, this really varies in different places. You can go on to the next slide. But just the main thing is that uh, the policy, the law, the payment structure has to be really, really thought of um, in, in front. And, and um, you can go on, you know, sometimes the big elephant in the room. Um, there are structural, clinical, financial, legal, and policy implications of making this kind of transformation and being aware of those and trying to proactively anticipate what they might be and who you need to talk to to, to, to make sure that they, they don't become big problems is, is, is very important early on. You can go on to the, the, next, the next slide. Um, so some things I think just, um, you know, focusing on these issues early on is really important. When you start to think about payment reform, it's not just um, about the dollars and cents. It's also about the new competencies. How will you scale these things? What kind of alignment do you need um, for different players in the medical home to be to be engaged in the medical neighborhood? How will contracts that already exist be restructured? If you have existing relationships with hospitals and specialists, how will you restructure those to be able to to transform and allow this transformation to be to be great. So this is really a, a shift in a lot of thinking that has to go on as well. Can 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 move on to the next next slide. I'm going to skip over this um, just in the interest of time. I know we've lost a lot. The last thing I wanted to really touch on is technology. And as as I mentioned, um, you can go on to the next slide. Technology is absolutely a tool. It is not the only answer. Um, when you're asking everybody to have electronic health records, everybody needs to be trained. There are significant technical um, requirements and training that comes along with that. But also when patients move through the medical neighborhood so much um, and you have very limited interoperability, so you can't, I can't get the records from the hospital when a patient goes to the hospital, but I'm responsible for making sure they get good care when they come back to you from the hospital. How are you going to wrestle with that? Um, how are you going to have um, primary care providers and stakeholders engaged in how these these tools that they're going to use for technology um, and, and provide some insight into how they could be better used. You know, people complain a lot about the electronic health records don't necessarily um, flow the way I've been trained to think about patient care. And so I'm going all, you know, patients telling me, you know, I was feeling really sick because I came out from my son's graduation and then I had pain in my lower back because I had this accident a few years ago. And they're telling me these things and that's how they talk and that's how we communicate. But I've got to go all over the electronic health record to kind of make that fit and record things in so many different places. So really think about technology as, as a part of, of, of the answer, but not the answer is really, really important. On this next slide, I, I just captured a really interesting um, you know, epiphany that I had um, in caring for a patient in, in my clinic um, in San Francisco, where we were using this longitudinal clinical record as the primary place where I documented everything, but also had a lot of information in another electronic health record called eClinical Works, where I'd send their prescriptions from. But if that patient needed an x-ray, that was in a completely different system, different login. 
Um, and I had to, if I wanted to look and see what their x-ray was. And let's say they had chronic pain and I was going to send a controlled substance or, or opioid to them, to the pharmacy for them. I'd have to first go into this other uh, controlled substance uh, login um, website that the state of California has and find out what other opioids they've had prescribed to them before sending it. And if they ended up going to the emergency department at UCSF and not San Francisco General where I am, then I've got to log into Apex and see what happened there. And then God forbid, you know, they go over to the emergency department and they go in and that's another login for me to see what even happened in that emergency department. And if they're admitted to the hospital, then the admission, the documentation is a com- in a complete different place. So that's for one patient. And that was seven different places that I've got to log in. And none of those places talk to each other. And that's not even talking about the pharmacies outside any other hospitals, the nursing facilities they might go to, any vital statistics, claims data. So um, in this case, technology didn't, is is almost um, is almost oppressive for me because there's just so much of it. I don't know where to go. Um, we'll go on to the next the next slide. So just thinking through um, all the different places where you've got to think through how can we create interoperable systems that communicate with each other that lessen the burden of the primary care provider and care team on being able to provide care for that patient, but that are truly collaborative. And those are the kind of things that I think we should have thought about early on. Um, you can go 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 on ahead the next one. So in, in summary, I, you know, those are the things that I think um, would have been really helpful to know up front um, uh, early on. And some of these things, maybe you don't know them until you start trying and then you realize, you know, we're going to, you know, you've added the, the eighth login for me now. And that's not really um, a very, very useful. It's not very patient centered at all. Um, but sometimes um, if you can anticipate some of these issues in advance, you can hopefully have a really good rollout when you're, when you're ready to, to go live or to expand. You can go on. Um, and then just in, in closing, it's, it's actually working. I mean, a, lo- a lot of the data that we've been looking at has been focused on cost, uh, quality, access. Um, the, the patient center primary care collaborative in the United States has an annual report that they do on the medical home's uh, impact on cost and quality, continuing to see studies showing that, uh, that in terms of uh, cost benefit, uh, utilization of an inappropriate um, emergency department or hospital use has gone down. Um, people are getting improved access to care. You can go on to the next slide. Um, and so we're, we're definitely seeing that. This is our newest report, but again, continuing to demonstrate that in the studies that are being done on patient-centered medical homes, there are benefits that are being shown in a number of different domains. So I, I would encourage you to take a look at that report um, for more details on all the studies that are, that are outlined there. On the next slide, it's... Um, a spotlight on, on one of the longer-standing um, uh, uh, patient-centered medical home initiatives by a payer, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. And um, they have talked about a number of their different lessons learned, kind of the, the 10 major lessons that they've learned. Um, and some of the things are things that we're talking about, getting people to be excited about it, encouraging payers to be excited about it, um, being thoughtful in the, in the timeframes that you're establishing, uh, technical assistance and collaborative mm-hmm. learning, Getting data that will be supportive and getting people really around the table is really, really important. You can go on, go on to the next one. So I think in the end, we'll, we'll, we're hopeful that, you know, we're going to create a really high, high tech system that's going to be high value for our patients, going to be the highest quality of care. But no matter what, and no matter how strong and, 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 and successful we become from a technology perspective, that the system will remain high touch and that people will still feel like you've given me the absolute best care that you can give me. And I've gotten that not just through you as my, my GP or my family doctor, but I've got that because you've created this incredible team of people that, that cares for me. And although there's a, a significant amount of technology that's being leveraged to do that, you're still looking at me in the eye. 
And I, I think that's really what, what, what we're hoping for. So I'll stop there. Um, and thank you so much for your, your patience as we dealt with the different technical issues. These are my two little, little kids. Um, I like to have them on the last slide with their thumbs up because then it, no matter what you guys think, they think I did a good job. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> we, we think you did a great job too. Are they um, out with you or are they back, back home? They're, no, they're back home. They're back home with my husband. Yeah, they, they couldn't make it out here um, this, this time. They came before, but not, not this time. So. Well, we love the, uh, the, the uh, hopeful ending that despite some of the obstacles of culture and of yeah. building teams and of technical problems and of financial barriers that need to overcome, we should start and get going because you can yes. still get positive, uh, demonstrable, measurable, good outcomes just from once you start. You just got to yeah. get in there. Just got to get in there and start. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, look, can we thank you very much for giving up your time to share this with you, uh, you. share this with us and with our participants and those who are viewing by webinar and podcast. And, and, and that's been really valuable for us. And we'll keep in touch about how we're all going. Okay, absolutely. I look forward to hearing about how it rolls out. Lovely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Browse our website for more information or get in touch to find out more about patient-centred medical homes.